But we are pleased, even in this busy time of year, that um, our neonatology leadership has been able to convince uh, someone to come from Philadelphia, not as easy as coming from Boston, where um, Jim and Steve knew Dr. Burris, but um, because of their past history, Dr. Ringer, as our chief of neonatology, is going to introduce our Grand Round speaker, Dr. Burris, this morning. Thanks, Keith, and I, I'll try to make this quick, which is hard to do with Heather because she's quite accomplished and wonderful. But uh, uh, Heather uh, is a native of Connecticut and then did uh, her undergraduate and medical school in Philadelphia and stayed in Philadelphia for residency at um, what we used to call the second best uh, children's hospital in <laughs> Uh, America, and we know which is number one. The uh, um, uh, and um, and came, but came to Boston in 2006 for her fellowship. Got her MPH uh, at the Harvard School of Public Health and in clinical effectiveness, and has really done unbelievable work uh, looking at uh, epigenetic factors in uh, the epidemiology of preterm birth, and I think. Um, really beautiful work that illustrates to me that not only is it the work you do, but it's really the ability to see the questions and ask the questions um, that wouldn't be obvious, at least to someone like me. So uh, we, Jim and I had the opportunity to work with Heather, Heather during her fellowship, and then Jim and Heather worked together at the Beth Israel, and then just this year, she went back to Philadelphia, um, long-standing cheesesteak abstinence, <laughs> finally caught up with her. So Heather, it's a great pleasure to have you. Oh, and I have to... Oh, yeah. All right, so can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so I did want to thank the two gentlemen in the front of the room um, for, <laughs> for, for raising me um, and, and uh, supporting me and then inviting me here today. Um, I don't have any financial disclosures or conflicts of interest that I'm aware of. And so my goal today really are to define epigenetic epidemiology and how we use this in cohort studies but also to kind of highlight the limitations of such studies um, and really just share the journey that we're on. And I would really say that I'm at that midway point, so I'd, I'd like you to bear with me. Some of my questions are yet to be answered. So as Steve mentioned, I did grow up in Bloomfield, Connecticut. It looks a little like it looks around here. It's beautiful and kind of these picturesque. Uh, New England scenes, but it's a really unusual town and it was majority African American. And this is my uh, first grade uh, classroom photo. And I was up there on, on the right there with a sweet haircut. But um, as you notice, um, I actually were the minority uh, as white uh, students. And only as the years went, went Is it working? 
There's something about being over 40 that makes people call me ma'am, too. So thank you. Um, well, just wait. It gets a lot. <laughs> awesome. Um, so as time went on, uh, it became more, more and more infrequent to see white students in our classroom as, as folks kind of moved up and up and out of Bloomfield, Connecticut. And because of this, I really saw themes through this unusual racial lens. So I learned who Stokely Carmichael was, you know, in my seventh grade you know, social studies class. And I don't think that would happen in Brookline, where I was raising my kids, and now in, uh, you know, suburban Philadelphia, where I'm raising my kids. And then I moved to Philadelphia, which, again, is a really diverse place and kind of has n not just a um, kind of plurality of African Americans, but also just kind of abject poverty. And I'm noticing that again upon my return. And um, it's, this is right near Temple University, and I used to park on streets like this, and you'd see um, just you know, children and, and pets that were really kind of out, not having enough resources, buildings that were just abandoned. And it really made me wonder, you know, how can you possibly be healthy when this is, this is the home that you're living in? And then I moved to Boston, which is really different, as you guys know. Um, and it's, you know, at the time was majority white. That's no longer the case, but um, much more kind of affluent city. Um, and, and it really kind of changed the way I, I heard race discussed, even in um, places like Harvard, where we studied disparities. But in the NICU, we'd hear about race in this way. We'd hear about the wimpy white boy. And so this would be your 37, 36, 37 week kind of big white boy in the corner <laughs> who, you know, would just be having unusual amount of respiratory distress and everyone would be so worried about him. Oh, is he going to develop pulmonary hypertension? Oh, is he an ECMO candidate? And we kind of missed the fact that his chance of ever getting into that NICU was so low compared to these, you know, African-American babies that were disproportionately represented even in our Boston NICU. Okay, so we had majority white patients because we had a majority white population, but we had had overrepresentation of, of black uh, patients. And um, this, this means we have worse outcomes for African-American babies. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at um, infant mortality, so in the first year, or just neonatal mortality in that first month, or after the first month in the first year. So you can see the, the uh, red bars here are non-Hispanic black infants. And uh, this is infant mortality per, per thousand. You can see it's about double for African-American babies, so non-Hispanic black compared to non-Hispanic white and Hispanic. And we know that this infant mortality is not uniformly distributed. Um, and we know also that about two-thirds of all infant mortality is attributed to uh, preterm birth, or that such that babies who die, two-thirds of them will be because they were preterm. And um, so it doesn't matter, again, whether you look at you know, preterm less than 37 weeks or very preterm or low birth weight, very low birth weight, it doesn't matter which variable you use. African-American babies have a much higher risk of each of these outcomes and thus an increased risk of infant mortality. And there are so many potential explanations for this. And people love to look at these long lists and study each one of these. Um, and I think for kind of biomedical people, we all kind of initially, especially in the 80s and 90s, wondered, is this just going to be genetic admixture, right? So you have different color skin. There are obviously genes that determine that. Are the, those same genes or ones that kind of travel with that, is that responsible for the differences we see in birth outcome? And there was really elegant work done 20 years ago by David, um, Richard David and Jimmy Collins in Chicago 
um, that I will say kind of for me put this to rest. This was not going to be largely explained by genetics. You'll always find a snip or two that somebody will pop up in, in studies, but this is not going to explain the majority of the variants. And this is their work, and you know, it's 20 years ago, so the graphics aren't quite what they would be now in R or whatever package you use to make your fancy graphs. Um, but on the x-axis is birth weight, so this is the birth weight distribution, and on the y-axis is percentage of births. And you can see nearly overlapping birth weight distributions to infants born to women who were themselves born in Africa, but delivered here in Illinois and white women's babies. Whereas you can see the shift to the left for babies that were born to black women who they themselves have been born and raised in the United States. And so there was something about being black in America over time and over generations perhaps that was leading to this differential birth weight distribution. And we know this is a compound um, outcome, right? It's gonna be a composite of both poor fetal growth as well as preterm birth, but in general still highlights uh, the vast differences we have in, in birth outcomes. And it, um, there was something either social, cultural, environmental, something about being black in America that was causing this. So how? Okay, so, so this is the case, but how does it happen? And I will say we still don't totally understand this. There's still a long list. And I think as we, as physicians, we wanna think, well, maybe it's prenatal care, right? It's something we're doing that can be fixed and we can make this better. Um, and I think for a proportion of this risk, it, that's going to be the case. Um, but Wanda Barfield, um, one of our, my predecessors, at least in, in Boston, who's now running uh, the show at the CDC when it comes to maternal child health and perinatal health, um, she did a really elegant study in looking at military women and showed that with kind of uniform prenatal care, black women and white women in the military receive the same prenatal care. You see a reduction in the difference in, in this case, this is moderately low birth weight. You can see there's a, a, about a 70% increased risk for black women compared to white women in the military of having a moderately low birth weight infant. Uh, whereas in the civilian population, it was you know, two and a half uh, the, times the risk. Um, and so you see an improvement, but you do not see an elimination of the disparity. And then in Massachusetts, we had kind of a natural experiment where we had universal health care put in place in 2006. And you can see right before then, we had, this is here now, low birth weight, so less than 2,500 grams. You see about a 60% increased risk um, of delivering a low birth weight infant um, among African Americans versus white Americans. Um, and then here in 2014, eight, out, eight uh, years after uh, universal health care, you still see a 50% increased risk. So healthcare itself is not going to solve this. This is why I did a degree in public health, because it's not going to just be medical care. This is gonna be kind of a global solution that we haven't quite figured out. And I'd really, really interested in figuring out, out why. What are the processes behind this? And our group thinks about all of these factors on the left globally as environmental exposures. Um, and you know, there's some emerging ones that we're thinking about. The microbiome's a big one that folks are focus focusing on right now. But all of these are environmental exposures, broadly defined. And we think that these affect epigenetic modifications or processes within our cells that change our, our phenotype. I'm gonna talk more about that. And that this may lead to differential risk of preterm birth or poor fetal growth. So I think probably in a few years, I'm not going to have to do this part because I think now epigenetics is taught in medical schools. So for the people who are under 30 in the room, just bear with me for a second. Um, but you know, when, when I went to med school and the folks ahead of me probably too, we learned the central dogma of biology. We learned that 
DNA gets transcribed into messenger RNA, which then gets translated into proteins, and that's how our body works. That's how we developed, and that's how our body worked. And you know, there was a little bit about alternative splicing at the time, but that was about it. I mean, I really didn't understand cellular differentiation or phenotypic variation among twins, for example. Um, and so this field of epigenetics has really kind of um, exploded in the last 20 years. And it is alterations in gene expression in the absence of DNA sequence variation, right? Do you know if you sequenced one of my leukocytes and then you sequenced one of my neurons, you'd get the same genetic sequence, but clearly those two cells have different phenotypes. And we know also there are genetically identical individuals who can have different phenotypes. So this can relate to both at the cellular level as well as the, or, the whole organism. And it's heritable at least at the mitotic level. So um, there are some of these marks that are heritable across generations or uh, transgenerationally inherited in some organisms, but um, at least at the, at the mitotic level to be considered epigenetic modification. And they're self-perpetuating. So there's some memory that that daughter cell has of what the, the parent cell had in terms of epigenetic marks. And then the part that the epidemiologist and the public health person in me is excited about is that these may be reversible and potentially modifiable. Right, so if the damage is there, unlike your genetic sequence, which is really hard to modify, although we're getting closer, I guess, um, I think epigenetics is a more malleable uh, process. And I want to give some credence to my, um, and credit to my epigenetic mentor, Andrea Baccarelli, who's actually now at Columbia. But he uses this really wonderful example, which helped, helped me understand epigenetics. He said that DNA was like the musical score, and um, that the phenotype was the performance that you hear when you go to the symphony, and that there are little notations that maybe the conductor or the musician might write on the top of the score, which might indicate a difference in how you would perform the music. So it might say louder or skip this part maybe, or and, you, and when you go to the performance, it'll be different, subtly different, but the underlying actual genetic sequence or the, the music on the score is the same. And some of these marks are going to be in pen, and some are going to be in pencil, and some are going to be more easily erased um, that, than others. And epigenetic marks are kind of like that. Some are really going to be, be stubborn and be stuck there, and others may be more modifiable. So there are many of these epigenetic marks. Most of us study DNA methylation because it's easily accessible and better understood. Um, this is when you have a carbon and three hydrogens, going back to um, organic chemistry, right on the top of your DNA between a cytosine and a guanine. Um, and then there are histone modifications, which affect the way the chromatin is accessible to transcription. Um, and then there are uh, non-coding RNAs, including microRNAs or long non-coding RNAs and other RNAs that can really block or enhance transcription and translation. So I'm going to pause for a second and let you guys hear a little video, which might be better at explaining this than I am. Our genetic information is encoded by the DNA when DNA is read or transcribed, one strand of the double helix serves as a template strand. The specific order of the four bases encodes genetic information and serves as a blueprint for our genetic makeup. Each one of the DNA labels is called a base pair. In total, 
The human genome consists of about 3 billion base pairs and encodes about 30,000 genes. In our cells, DNA is wrapped around proteins by thread around a screw. The structure that we see here is called the nucleosome, which consists of the DNA helix tightly coiled around histone proteins. Histones have long extensions, or histone tails, which protrude from the nucleosome core. As we can see, modifications to both the histone tail and the DNA itself are indicative of whether DNA is active or not, and this is controlled by epigenetics. And for some reason, on the bottom of my slide, the credit didn't come through, but that's from WEHI, which is a, an Australian educational initiative. So in, in plain language, epigenetics is differences in gene expression and the absence of DNA sequence variation. You can see these two identical mice, genetically identical, but obviously not phenotypically identical. These are the agouti mice, and we're going to talk about them a little bit more. So um, this is one of the best examples of mammalian epigenetic variation and differences in health outcomes. On the left, you see these um, kind of fat yellow mice. They are tumor-prone. They're diabetic. And on the right, you see these brown, lean, healthy mice. And this is due to different differential DNA methylation of this particular allele called the AVY allele. Um, and the phenotype is dose-dependent, such that uh, the more methylation there is, the more likely you're going to be this brown, healthy mouse. Um, and it's not just mice that, to which for, for whom this matters, but also our, our cells, right? And so the difference between, a, as I mentioned, a neuron and a leukocyte is really differentially, uh, differential um, epigenetic marks determine early in development, uh, the, these factors. And so you can imagine that when you are uh, in a really dynamic state, uh, such as in the embryonic phase or even earlier, you can have changes to your epigenetics that could have kind of lifelong effects and affect your, your cell lines as they, as they develop, as well as major um, changes to your inactive parts of your genome. So we have imprinted regions that are turned on and off depending on whether that uh, chromosome or that uh, is inherited from the mother or the father, or that gene is inherited from the mother or the father. But also for, looks like here maybe only about, usually when I give this talk it's about 80% of the room, but here maybe 40% of the room has uh, two X chromosomes, one of which is turned off. Um, and uh, X inactivation is also one of the best examples of uh, epigenetic modification and, and its function. So I'm going to show this last video. Epigenetic inheritance can be visualized by the process of X inactivation. This is a close-up of a single cell from a 100-cell embryo, an embryo which is approximately four days old. At this early stage of development, female embryos still have two active X chromosomes. One X chromosome is inherited from the father, the other is inherited from the mother. <laughs> Around this time, the two active X chromosomes interact transiently and one is inactive. The other is kept active. This process is mediated by both RNAs and proteins. <coughs> Inactivation of the X chromosome involves the condensing of DNA. This is marked by the change of histone tail modification 
the arrival of structural proteins which shall condense the DNA and DNA maturation. So the question is whether the environment, again broadly defined, can affect these processes. Um, and so going back to the agouti mouse, we do know that at least diet can do this. So folic acid, as we all know, is a methyl donor, so it provides the carbons necessary to do DNA methylation. And if these agouti mice mothers are supplemented with a, you know, a diet high in methyl donors, their offspring two generations down are more likely to be healthy mice, the brown mice. Now this is not kind of your Mendelian inheritance patterns, right? So we're just talking about risk. And so there's increased risk of having unhealthy out, um, offspring if you're not supplemented with the methyl donors. And this, this kind of speaks to these complex traits we see in, in health that are not Mendelian uh, uh, in terms of their inheritance patterns, but these complex diseases, things like Alzheimer's and asthma and all of these other kind of complex diseases have really lent themselves to this area of, of study because of this kind of subtle increase in, uh, in risk with all of these environmental factors that we know about. And it's not just diet that can do this, but also the toxic environment. So we know that bisphenol A, uh, which used to be in baby bottles and now is in cans and receipts and in other places. Um, if that you give that to those same agouti mice while they're pregnant, their offspring are more likely to be yellow and unhealthy. Um, and I think the most exciting part about Dana Dolinori's work here was that the effects can be reversed or the negative effects can be mitigated if you also supplement those same mothers while they're exposed to BPA to folic acid or folate, high methyl donor diet. And so this is the part that I think has attracted so many of us to this field because we're not going to live in a toxic-free environment or a stress-free environment. But if we can understand some of these processes and if they are translatable to humans, then potentially <laughs> we may be able to improve health outcomes, especially kind of early on in, in uh, fetal development. So <laughs> did you guys, any, how many of you are uh, neonatologists or NICU providers? Yeah. Did you guys participate in the Vermont Oxford Network um, NAS micro lessons a couple of years ago? Yeah. So um, there was this moment in that where there, this was an, a way to optimize the care for infants exposed to moms who were on uh, opiate dependence, um, so who were who were on methadone or Subutex or uh, other opiates, and. Uh, there was a physician in this, a family physician in this um, micro lesson who was t kind of touting the, the strength of his program where the moms and the babies were rooming in together in Vancouver and there was a really supportive environment. And he said that this was the, he was optimizing, he called the video optimizing the epigenetics and it was the human equivalent of Michael Meany's rat model. And I thought, oh my God, they're going to talk about epigenetics in the NAS micro lesson. But they, they didn't. But I thought I would take a moment uh, to e explain to you what he was talking about. And um, it, you know, I would say what he, what he said was a bit of an extrapolation of uh, some animal data, which I'll share with you now. So uh, it is known that if you are a rat pup and you are raised by a caring mom who does a lot of licking and grooming you, you are going to be this relaxed adult. That's that you're most likely to be this relaxed, loving adult yourself. And 
if you're raised by an anxious, mean mom who doesn't really lick you or groom you, you are not going to be a nice, relaxed adult. You're going to be a mean mom or a mean adult when you're older. And um, it, it hasn't really been known how that process happens, um, but uh, this was Michael Meany's group, and so Weaver and all showed that this was due to DNA methylation of the glucocorticoid receptor. And the way that they showed this was by doing cross-fostering studies, such that if you are raised so on the x-axis, this is to whom you're born, low nurturing, low nurturing, this is who you're raised by. You're born and raised to a high nurturing mom, or you're born to a high nurturing mom and raised by a low nurturing mom, or you're born to a low nurturing mom and raised by a high nurturing mom. So you can't do this in humans, but in, in rats, you can you know, swap who your mom is, right, and, and have you raised by the, the other. And what they found was that if you're raised by a mean mom and born to a mean mom, your, your DNA methylation of the glucocorticoid receptor, which is here on the y-axis, is much more the, similar. So who you're raised by determines this DNA methylation and also determines the phenotype of being mean or nice when you're older. Whereas if you're born and raised to a high-nurturing mom or raised by a high-nurturing mom, you have low DNA methylation of the glucocorticoid receptor, showing that really it was this, the nurture environment, not the nature or the genetic sequence, that was determining the adult rat behavior as well as the DNA methylation. And then Tim Oberlander in, in Canada uh, did an analogous kind of analysis. Uh, you can't do the study the same way, but in humans, um, where there's, a, there's an analogous sequence uh, called NR3C1. It's one of the, it's the glucocorticoid receptor promoter region. And um, here, this is on the x-axis, the maternal depression scale. And so the more depressed the mother was, the higher the DNA methylation in the offspring. So in humans as well. And so uh, there's some evidence that the social environment might affect your epigenetics. And that's what uh, the Von Microlesson guy was, was sharing with us. But there are many, many exposures. And we're exposed to all of them at once, right? It's not just your diet. And it's not just your uh, licking and grooming mom, right? We're not rats with, uh, with isolated exposures that are well controlled. But instead, we're exposed to a host of these and um, as I mentioned before, people are studying these for all sorts of complex outcomes. And we've used the same kind of um, framework to study birth outcomes. And then we've added these kind of uh, uh, major factors that affect birth outcomes for our, for our patients. We know that smoking in humans is another such exposure that affects the DNA methylation of offspring. So if... For any of you who have smoked cigarettes um, you know, in your life for not just the one cigarette in college, but kind of habitually, um, you will have differential DNA methylation of one particular site in your aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor gene, okay, the AHRR gene. And this is so reproducible that um, it's been patented and um, insurance companies, so that insurance companies can potentially test your DNA and be able to determine what your insurance rates should be for your life insurance, your disability insurance. Okay, so uh, yeah, this group here uh, is hoping, I think, to profit from that. Um, so what's incredible is that it's not just adults to whom this happens, but if your mother smokes while you're pregnant, you have the exact same differential DNA methylation pattern in the offspring. So babies born to mothers who smoke look like ex-smokers 
on their DNA methylation pattern of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor. And this has been shown now in multiple studies. This was the original study. Bonnie Jobert did this. She's now at NIEHS at, at the NIH. But it's this particular site that is the reproducible site. And these are two, the red and the blue are two different birth cohorts. So you can see that these are really reproducible findings in two different unrelated birth cohorts. And then she did a meta-analysis. This is called a volcano plot. It's a really fun way to show your data because on the x-axis, you have your regression coefficient. So maybe more methylation over here, less methylation over here. And up here, you have on the y-axis, the negative log of the p-value. So the higher up you are, the more the smaller your p-value is or the more statistically significant your finding is. And so this is that same site, the patented site, and this is in a meta-analysis of many birth cohorts, thousands of kids uh, exposed to maternal smoking. Um, and so this, this finding has been so, so striking that it's really driven the field. Um, and it was this finding that, that really motivated some of our work. We, we wondered, what, well, what is this aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor? It's a gene that represses the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Um, and and this, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor detoxifies. It links with NF-kappa B. It's involved in inflammatory states. Not surprising. I feel like everything always comes back to inflammation. Um, and so we, our group, thought, well, maybe it's not just going to be smoking, but other states that are involved in inflammation that may be associated with the DNA methylation of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor. And we studied um, several kind of exposures or co-outcomes, um, maternal BMI in pregnancy, gestational age at birth, as well as birth weight for gestational age at birth. And we did this in another mentor of mine's uh, birth cohort in Mexico City. So Bob Wright has a birth cohort there that he enrolled, he and the, his team enrolled women between 2007 and 2011, and they were receiving routine prenatal care through the state system there, and they were enrolled in the second trimester, early sec late first, early second trimester. And we had cord blood from 512 babies, um, and we looked at three CPG sites, so three methylation sites within the aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressor. And we, um, this, this is just describing the cohort. It's a pretty healthy cohort. What I would point out is that the babies are small here. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Z-scores, a Z-score of zero would be very average. This is using the Fenton birth weight for gestational age um, growth chart. And zero would be, uh, you, you, if you were like the reference group, your, your mean would be zero. But these babies in Mexico City are smaller, about a half standard deviation smaller than average. Not surprising given the elevation of Mexico City and the socioeconomic status of the folks there. And then we looked at the DNA methylation of each of these sites. What I'd like to point out, so each of these is one DNA methylation site, and up here is the percent DNA methylation. And what I'd like to point out, this is called a spaghetti plot, and you can see the correlation among these sites. Oh, it's 8.30, there's a fake code I learned, right? <laughs> um, okay, so, um, there, these, each of these sites has, um, is, is measured here in the same individual. And so people who are high tend to stay high. And so I'd like to point out the DNA methylation in a region is often quite correlated with itself. 
Um, and so it's really important in our statistical analyses not to assume that these are independent of each other. And you can see that in a different way here when we look at a bivariate ex kind of exposure outcome model. Here on the x-axis is maternal BMI and um, during, so pre-pregnancy BMI. And then here on the y-axis is the DNA methylation of the offspring. And you can see as the maternal BMI goes up, so does the offspring DNA methylation. And each of the different colors is a different one of those sites. But they all have a real subtle um, increase in uh, DNA methylation. And here we see with gestational age, the more advanced the gestational age, the lower the DNA methylation of each of these sites. And then same with birth weight for gestational age. The larger the babies, the lower the DNA methylation. And when we look at these in adjusted models, looking at the categorical outcomes, here we have normal weight, overweight, and obese mothers. You can see the subtle um, increase in DNA methylation um, in the offspring for, for infants that were born to obese mothers. Here you have preterm infants with higher DNA methylation, and here you have the smaller infants with higher DNA methylation. And this holds up in multivariable analyses. We have to use these fancy um, generalized estimating equation models to account for the correlation um, between the, the, the sites. Um, and, but you can see here that this is, the, these are beta coefficients, just increase, real subtle increase. So 2% on average increased DNA methylation for obese versus normal weight mothers, offspring DNA methylation, preterm infants about 3%, um, and then small babies about 1%. So that was kind of my, one of my first projects in epigenetics, and I was really proud of it, but it had several limitations. Um, the first, with well, some strengths too. So it was a large cohort, it was prospective, and it was hypothesis-driven, but it was gene-specific. So unlike what I showed you earlier with Bonnie Jobert's work, she was looking at 450,000 DNA methylation sites and letting the data tell her which ones were associated. And so that's more of an epigenome-wide um, process. It's also a much more expensive process. Um, and so ours was gene-specific. Um, and it also, leukocytes might not be the right tissue. So I mentioned to you earlier that the difference between a neuron and a leukocyte, in part, is its epigenetic makeup. And so if we're studying you know, leukocytes, is that really the tissue you care about when you're studying birth outcomes? Maybe it's not. Maybe you want to look at the placenta. Maybe you want to look at, at, at something else that would be more relevant. If you're worried about neurodevelopment, you want to study the brain. We know that that's really hard to get access to. Um, and we generally have a lot of these limitations when we do human epigenetic studies. We lack good target tissues. So we end up looking at things like cord blood or peripheral blood. Sometimes you'll see buccal swabs. Um, all of which are fine when you're just doing genetic sequence, but when you're looking for differences in these epigenetic marks, they're really going to vary by tissue. And then um, there are these highly relevant tissues that are just difficult to sample, especially prospectively. So our group, um, I, I, it was 2009. I just had my first kid, and I was sitting in this class, epigenetics class. I didn't know what epigenetics was at the time. And um, our professor said, you know, Think about target tissues that are that you have access to, right? That might really help you in this field. And I remembered that you know you, you have studies done on you while you're pregnant. And I remembered having a Pap smear, right? You get a Pap smear when you're pregnant if you're due for one. And I thought, well, they're looking for HPV DNA. Why can't we get human? DNA. And so the cervix um, is a tissue that's directly relevant to parturition. It's readily, readily, but it is available for sampling. <laughs> um, and we know that premature shortening of the cervix places women at higher risk of, or at least is associated with a higher risk of delivering preterm. 
Um, one of the diagnostic criteria for labor is that the cervix has to change. I mean, how many consults have you done when a woman has premature contractions? But without cervical change, she's not in labor. Um, and then the mechanisms behind premature shortening of the cervix and cervical incompetence or failure is, are not well understood. Um, but we know that prostaglandins play a role in cervical function because women are induced with prostaglandins, like cervidal cytotec. Um, and this is just a picture of, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a depiction of a long cervix and a short cervix. We also know that short cervix is less common. So these are the cervical lengths in millimeters. And you can see it's really uncommon to have a cervix that's less than 1.5 centimeters. But if you do have one, you're more likely to deliver early. Um, and it's more common for you to have a longer cervix, and therefore, and, and when you do, you're less likely to deliver early. It's just this one particular study. Um, and if you're found to have a short cervix, sometimes the obstetricians will intervene, right? They may, might use a cerclage or give progesterone or use a pessary. And so it's important for them to measure the cervical length. So for us, we obtained a swab similar to a pap smear. Um, and we then analyzed the DNA. This is actually a subset of that original Mexico City cohort. The last 100 women we approached, and 80 of them said yes, shockingly, to having their cervix sampled. Um, and then we did uh, bisulfide conversion, pyrosequencing, to analyze the DNA methylation of the prostaglandin receptor 2 gene. Again, gene-specific. Um, and then also, at the time, we thought that this line one, these are repetitive elements, was kind of a, a marker of global methylation. It's probably not. It's probably more of an inflammatory marker. But nonetheless, these were the, the sequences we analyzed. And we did linear regression models to look at associations between exposures and the DNA methylation. And then we used some fun models called accelerated failure time models to model the length of gestation. This was a small cohort of 80 individuals. And these are cool models because they're kind of what engineers use when you're, if you ever could buy a light bulb at Home Depot, and it'll tell you how many hours to expect that light to work. Um, we know that some will fail early, and all will fail by a certain time, and that's kind of like pregnancy. So some will deliver early, but nobody, unless you're in Berkeley, is going past like 43 weeks. <laughs> and so it's not a normally distributed um, outcome. Um, and so this was the progress uh, cervix cohort. It's just the, the subset of that original Mexico City cohort. And it's pretty similar to the, the bigger cohort. And what we found is that um, it's a real subtle association. I'll show you a little bit more in a second. But this is gestational age on the x-axis and DNA methylation on the y-axis and slightly longer gestational age, mainly within the realm of full term. Um, uh, with higher DNA methylation of the prostaglandin 2 receptor. When we did adjusted models and these accelerated failure time models, you can see that here, um, if you adjust for maternal age, and also this marker of PAP inflammation, which was really kind of getting at that cell admixture, because the cervix is not a perfect, simple, one type of cell uh, organ either. You get leukocytes, you get epithelial cells, you might get stromal cells. And so uh, once we adjusted for that marker, we were able to see subtle changes, so differences in two days in the gestational age. So really more of a proof of concept, but a fun study nonetheless. And so our DNA methylation work has resulted in our concluding that we know, and others work, uh, that we know that maternal smoking and perhaps BMI are associated with DNA methylation of the offspring. 
infant birth weight for gestational age and um, gestational age itself is associated with DNA methylation. And that maternal cervical DNA methylation may ultimately predict the length of gestation. We're not there yet, but we can see some subtle associations. We then moved on to look at microRNAs, another epigenetic mark. Um, and this is just a heat map in that same birth cohort. Um, and each of these vertical lines is one individual. And on the y-axis, you can see six different microRNAs. And you can see this pattern where it looks like increased, which is red, increased expression of each of these microRNAs on the left was associated with an increased risk of being on the shorter end of this length of gestation. But again, most of these kids were term. It's not going to be a perfect prediction, right? You see this red line here, right, and this maybe here. Um, and so there, it, it doesn't well differentiate the way that you'd want a real clinical test to tell you, but it does tell you that perhaps there are some associations. And then the question is, well, why? Why would you have differential microRNA expression in your cervix, and why might that be associated with the difference in the length of gestation? And I think a lot of us think about infection. We think about that with um, chorioamnionitis, and we know that bacterial colonization, specifically with um, bacterial vaginosis, is associated with the risk of delivering preterm. So it's one of the most common infections of the um, general urinary tract in, in women childbearing age, and it may be, it may be preterm birth, um, it, the risk of that goes up by about anywhere from 50 to about 200% um, if you have BV, and up to 6% of preterm birth may be attributable to bacterial vaginosis. I think the most frustrating thing is after all of these trials, that treatment with um, antibiotics treats BV, but it doesn't get rid of your risk of delivering preterm. So there are two explanation, potential explanations for that. One is that BV doesn't cause preterm birth, and it's some sort of confounding association. The other is that BV may cause preterm birth, but by the time you treat it, it's too late to have done anything about it. And there may be a cascade of events that is underway that you're too late with your antibiotics. And um, so our... We, thinking that it might be the latter, our, role, our goal was to examine the role of um, bacterial and cytokine mixtures in the cervix and their, um, whether they had any effect or association on microRNA patterns in gestational age. And so we did the same, the same uh, sub-cohort. We extracted RNA. The lesson there was always get more than one swab whenever you're collecting samples. Get lots of swabs if you can. Um, but we ended up um, going back to those swabs and extracting RNA. Um, and also, we were able to, to um, use the nanostring platform to be able to quantify how much of the RNA of some of these cytokines was present as well. And what we found was that a lot of these bacterial vaginosis organisms are correlated with each other. Not a surprise, they co-locate. Um, and so it's important to consider them as a potential mixture. And I worked with a statistician named Chris Jennings, and she works on these weighted quantile sum regression models to be able to capture, she's now at Mount Sinai in New York, but to be able to capture the different, uh, the impact of a mixture, not just of one particular component of a mixture. So we use this weighted quantile sum regression to create a bacterial index as well as a cytokine index and look at that with respect to microRNA expression. We 
first did linear regression models looking at these mixtures with gestational age to confirm that our index had worked. So the way that you create one of these indexes is you pick your outcome of interest that you want your index to work for. And that can't be the question that you're trying to answer in your study because you've defined your index to be really good at predicting your particular outcome of interest. And then you maybe can apply that index to a different outcome. And so we these, this weighted quantile sum regression tells you how important each of your components of your mixture is. Um, and so the bacterial mixture was driven by these two bacteria, uh, urea plasma and Gardnerella. And then the cytokine mixture was driven by IL-8 and TNF. Um, and then as designed, uh, the bacterial index was associated with shorter lengths of gestation, as was the cytokine index. So this was the part that we said, we're going to make our index do this. And then we applied these indices to microRNA expression in those same samples. And we found that the bacterial index was associated with seven microRNAs, um, although only one really met our threshold for um, statistical significance, this microRNA-494. And then you can put these microRNAs into statistical packages um, to understand what pathways they might be involved with and how they interact with others. I will say these, have, these, these programs have their own limitations because they really depend on what's been published before. And so you're not going to learn about new interactions. And when most of the research is done in cancer, your answer ends up being cancer, even if that isn't necessarily the pathway uh, that you were interested in in the beginning. So we see this here in, in enriched for cancer. Um, but we can also see that there, um, when we look at the candidate microbes, that um, the microbes are associated with, it's both the cytokines and the microbes are associated with decreased expression of this mirror 494. And the cytokine index was associated with a lot more of these microRNAs. And so it's really important to think about them in a composite way. But when we look at just the top three, you can see that um, some of these same microRNAs, like this one, it showed up in the gestational age analysis, also shows up here. And then these are these network maps that the pathway software can put out. And you can see that this MIR-494 shows up right in the center. Not a surprise. It was the one that was most associated with, the, um, with the, each index. And um, it's part of the inflammatory response and reproductive system disease, not a surprise as well. So our speculation after all of this was that bacterial vaginosis may lead to earlier delivery through local tissue programming, but a lot more work needs to be done to determine this. Um, and probably more prospective work, we measured the bacteria and the microRNAs simultaneously. So it's very possible that the microRNAs themselves are creating a phenotypic environment that's more welcoming to the bacteria, too. So it may be reverse causation, and it's important to consider that. And secondly, we also want to know whether other exposures may be causing local tissue programming and leading to increased risk of spontaneous preterm birth. So whether stress or exposure to racism or poverty can all lead to local tissue programming through epigenetic modifications here. We don't know, similarly with toxic exposures. So it's likely we're going to be able to detect that with really potent exposures, medications, for example, <coughs> whereas these subtle air pollution and others may be uh, more difficult to, to detect and will need larger cohorts. So our future directions are really to look at other exposures of interest uh, with microRNA expression. And then we're starting to use some machine learning techniques to really get at 
this microRNA profiling because what we've done so far, just in individual regression models and then ranked them by their p-value. And really, it might be what your profile of microRNAs is that matters. So if you're high in one and low in the other, you're not going to pick that up when you're just looking at one microRNA. And so they're really fun tools that people at Google use, um, things like XGBoost and other kind of predictive algorithms to know where you're going to click next on your computer. And here we want to try to tune a model to try to predict who's going to be at highest risk of delivering preterm based on multiple molecular marks, not just microRNAs, but others as well. And this is an example of the XG boost. So um, you can really improve your, uh, receive, um, your, your, your predictions if you are able to use all of the information in your molecular assays versus just one at a time. So uh, the implications of this work really are to understand, understanding the mechanisms that connect social and environmental factors to adverse birth outcomes is critically important to motivate public health efforts, um, to explain disparities, um, and to potentially ultimately improve clinical prediction and really optimize prevention if possible. Um, and we have an ongoing birth cohort of over 1,000 women, and so we're hoping to be able to answer some of these questions soon. We're, uh, we have a problem, which I don't know if you guys have here, too, when we enroll women. The women who often say yes are our postdocs and PhD students who are low risk of delivering preterm, so it's going to take a larger cohort than we had anticipated to get to our spontaneous preterm birth outcomes, so this is ongoing. And I have a new collaboration in Philadelphia, and one of the motivations to move there was really to address some of these disparities. And there, the birth cohorts tend to be about 60 to 70 percent African American, and we may be able to really kind of delve uh, deeper into these questions there. Because our goal is really to link these marks with, with the risk factors for preterm birth and, and their, their disparities. So I'd like to thank just our funders. We've been really lucky. Um, and all of our collaborators, mentors, research assistants. And I wanted to leave a little time for questions um, for those of you who are interested and happy to talk about uh, this work as well, as well as other work and career paths and those kinds of things. methylation of various genes, and you see that the maternal methylation increases with smoking. The baby who's being gestated has increased methylation. Does that persist in the baby? So from cell to cell as the baby grows, does that yeah. methylation persist? Really good question. So we have some unpublished data that will hopefully come out soon, not on smoking, but um, in Project Viva, which is another birth cohort in Boston. We've been looking at um, maternal antidepressants and... Uh, DNA methylation in offspring. And what we see is that we see persistence to about age two, and then we have another follow-up at age seven, and the signal dissipates. And we're not surprised about that, right? Because I think we see there are so many other factors that start to play a role in mitosis and cell kind of effects and programming and all the other influences that are... Uh, so it's not... It's probably not as permanent as maybe folks had initially been concerned about, or we just don't have the, um, 
ability to detect the real subtle differences that may be persisting. So I don't know the answer to, to the question around the smoking. Um, for, for adults, you can actually, by the amount of methylation, they can actually kind of get close to predicting how long ago somebody quit smoking. Um, so that one's a real useful um, marker. In terms of the, the, the kids whose moms smoked, nobody's done the kind of follow-up um, study. So to it's figure. not clear if secondhand smoke has similar effects. Well, so we've looked at that, um, and you know, I think secondhand smoke suffers some of the same problems that studying air pollution or low lead levels or whatever it is you're studying. When, when it's a less potent exposure, you need, the effect size is likely to be smaller, and you're going to need a lot bigger numbers. And so we have not been able to see that. And there's also more variation in the exposure. So it's harder in cohort models. Unless somebody's wearing a, a local kind of sensor, it's really hard to tell how much smoke they're... <laughs> yes, they do. They do. So the folks at Columbia have used those um, for um, kind of diesel exposure and air pollution, you know, home... Uh, but it, it, when that happens, those studies are so expensive that the N has to be so much smaller than what you would need probably to detect the small difference that you'd see. Yeah, so there, there are challenges. I, it's not that it can't be done, but. I think ultimately computer modeling, I agree, because you have so many genes, so many levels of methylation, and so many exposures that to try to figure out what is the pattern and where you're going to have the biggest impact, like you're going to need a computer, <laughs> some program that hopefully my son will develop. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree with you. It's going to be the computer, so it will help us. Hi. I have a question on NAS because that's what I work on, and actually I work started with the non-collaborative that you mentioned before, the full grooming in model here. Yeah. I wanted to know if you know anyone looking at the specific epigenetics for both grooming in, and then the other thing that we've really tried to work on here that I think affects the epigenetics for the baby is how we interact with the parents and the family because we as a healthcare system can add a lot of stress to people who are no. dealing with addiction right? <laughs> and how we judge them etc. Yeah, yeah, no, really good question. So there is a there are at least two groups looking at the epigenetics of um, of NAS. More on the Who's going to have NAS? You know, so it's weird. You could have the, the mom with the same methadone dose. And uh, so Alicia Walkman had worked on the genetics, and then I think she's moving into the epigenetics of this. So kind of trying to understand why certain babies are more susceptible to the kind of need for morphine or whatever you're using, methadone, yeah, clonidine. It seems more related to how people process opioids, which is the mother Yeah. Levels, levels, et yeah, so I, I think you're not the only one interested in this. I was just speaking with um, some folks in Philadelphia. Which, so there are some rare sites that are both NICHD neonatal network sites and maternal fetal medicine network sites, right? And Diana Bianchi, who's now the head of NICHD, is really interested in making sure those two groups work together. And we were thinking that NAS may be a way to kind of be... Uh, kind of the, in the next grant round cycle. And so, um, but I think that's often around kind of optimizing care. I think linking this to something biomedical might be helpful um, in terms of, you know, if 
um, going to administrations and asking for resources and special rooms and special places to change practice, which is always really expensive. So sometimes justifying that in some way. This glucocorticoid receptor has been a real reproducible finding in many studies of Holocaust survivors and offspring and such. So there's a lot around that. So I think that would be the place to start if you had to do it on the cheap. And I'm happy to talk with you about doing that. Yeah. Yeah, um, great talk. Thank you so much. There was a hypothesis um, when cells are uh, cultured in half media, they're hypomethylate. And that's what's done with in vitro fertilization. Yeah. So this is offered as a possible explanation of why you see imprinting disorders yeah. like with in the project. Just wondering, does anyone look statistically for those things that really do follow imprinting? And compare because you predict that the differences between African American and white might disappear if the child is born through a mutual fertilization for disorders that depend on methylation. Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's been some work on um, disparities around IVF success rates um, by race and ethnicity, but I don't think anyone's asked that particular question. One of the hardest things about studying racial disparities in epigenetics is the fact that SNPs that may not be medically important at all um, can really drive your methylation patterns. Because if you have a SNP near a CPG site or even in a CPG site, so you don't have the C, all of those get kind of taken out during QC, so during quality control. Um, and we do see real differences by race. We just don't know how much of that, because a lot of epigenetics is genetically determined. And so it's really hard to tease those two things out. But I think that would be a really nice controlled way to just look among IVF babies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, the criticisms, and even when I review these papers, the criticisms we always say is, oh, well, do you know it's the IVF versus the reason for the infertility that's driving these decisions and or these differences in uh, epigenetic patterns? And so, but I, I, I hear you, and I think we probably should make use of those data. I don't know how often the IVF centers are um, share their data. Um, so. There's a definite bias to not find negative Right, yeah. <laughs> so if I can a question, mm -hmm. I remember a bunch of years ago someone told me that the error of the triple threat is dying, uh, knowing that it's a great, uh, wonderful mentor and innovative researcher convinces me that it's not true, but it's short-sighted because knowing your devotion to your kids and your family, quite for You also made me realize that maybe I'm a mean mom. <laughs> no more adverse environment than the NICU. Um, people are starting to wonder about some sort of minor morbidities, the things that we don't know about when a baby leaves the NICU, but our pediatric colleagues yeah. uh, uncover. Do you think there's room to look at any of these things and how the, uh, the environment of the NICU might affect Yeah. Yeah, so I've thought a lot about, there's a friend of mine, Amory Strustrup, she's um, now the division chief at Mount Sinai, is looking at the physical environment in the NICU and the um, epigenetics of that and the kind of negative neurologic impacts. And actually, Steve Ringer had done a, a lot of that early work um, on the different plastics 
um, phthalates, et cetera, that you can detect in our babies. And it would be amazing, and what I've tried to get her to consider doing is randomizing to different, you know, if, if we think that this NG tube is the same as this NG tube, but they're just made of different components, can we just randomize kids and see if there are differences in their molecular um, signatures as well as their long-term outcomes? I think the same could be done um, during a NICU redesign, for example. So um, you, could, you could think about a pre-post in the kind of most crude way, but ideally you'd want to randomize babies to you know, sharing rooms versus not sharing rooms and seeing what happens, for example, to that glucocorticoid receptor or, you know, we know kangaroo mother care works for lots of things. You know, what is the impact? Um, and some of these changes are rapidly cycling. So even, you know, on Friday after being exposed to exhaust at your job, you have different DNA methylation than you do by the time Monday rolls around. And so are we able to detect any of that uh, after things like kangaroo mother care and also the impact of some of the opiates that we're using in our babies as well? So, yeah. Thank you.